At Urban Grace, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a schedule that provides four readings each week, one from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, one from the Psalms, the Gospels, and another New Testament reading. This schedule covers most of the Bible in three years and is followed by Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant Christians around the world. And this year, the Old Testament readings for ordinary time take us through Genesis and Exodus. Now, these are two of my favorite books of the Bible, so I tend to preach on them every three years. But in the past, we spend the whole summer on Genesis, and then right when the lectionary brings us to Exodus, we start our season of creation, and, well, we never really get to dig into Exodus. And that's a huge bummer, because Exodus is one of the most important books in the Hebrew Bible. It's the story of a people finding faith and finding collective identity and the story of God liberating people from political oppression. Probably more than any other religious or secular book, Exodus has shaped how people understand liberation and revolution. It was uh, used in the Protestant Reformation, in the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the struggle for independence from colonial powers in Africa and Latin America. It's a story that gave hope to American slaves. It provided a theological center for the American Civil Rights Movement, for liberation theology, and the struggle in South Africa against apartheid. This is an incredibly influential book, and it's not only about revolution. Most of Exodus takes place after God's people are freed, right? And the lessons teach us that, that liberation doesn't guarantee liberty, right? Just because we throw off our oppressors doesn't mean that, that oppression ceases to shape and influence us. After the Israelites are freed, they're constantly tempted by the exploitive luxuries that Egypt offered. They're tempted to return, which is why the story is retold again and again. And there's so much there. So this summer, we're going to kind of work our way through some of the most powerful stories in Exodus. And so now Joni will... Uh, start with our opening scene. Exodus 1, 8 through 2, 10. Israel is oppressed. Now, a new king came into power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will grow in number, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forest work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build storage cities named Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread. So much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. 
They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of cruel work. The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you can see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, Why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? The two midwives said to Pharaoh, Because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people. Throw every baby boy born to Hebrews into the Nile River. But you can let all the girls live. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful. So she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket amongst the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her women servants walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed. Yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me. I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. Will you please pray with me? God of grace, God of hope, God of freedom, we give thanks for your spirit that dwells with each one of each one of us and within each one of us. And we pray that through that spirit, we will hear your word for us today. Amen. In the opening scene of Exodus, we're introduced to a king who sees a group of foreigners in his land. He gets scared they could revolt, so he oppresses them. Right away, we know the king, Pharaoh, is the bad guy. I mean, <laughs> He comes out and says, let us oppress them with forced labor. Let's be ruthless and make them build cities. You know, it only takes a few verses before we know Pharaoh is the oppressor that needs to be overthrown. But even as these verses just, you know, get right to the point, they teach us about the nature of oppression. 
Oppression often happens through small, gradual steps that normalize and institutionalize the exploitation of people. In the book of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers are welcomed as honored guests in Egypt, but that slowly changes. In the following generations, the Israelites, or the Hebrews, go from guests to guests' workers to slaves. Hebrew Midrash tells that at first the Hebrews were paid wages to build the cities for Pharaoh. Then their wages were withheld, but they couldn't do anything about it because they were strangers without family to care for them. They were poor and needy, so they were vulnerable to exploitation. And the experience of being exploited as poor foreigners ends up shaping the Hebrew Bible. When the Israelites create laws, they remember how their vulnerability and their exploitation led to them being enslaved. Like it says in Deuteronomy, don't take advantage of poor or needy workers whether they're fellow Israelites or immigrants who live in your land or cities. Pay them their salary the same day before the sun sets because they're poor and their very life depends on that pay. Exodus teaches us that we need to prevent the conditions that lead to the poor and needy being vulnerable to exploitation. And, and again, I think there's, we see signs of, of how we get there. Uh, I'll, Gustavo Gutierrez once said, you say you care for the poor? Well, then tell me their names. Because when we're in relationship with people, when we know people, we see their full humanity we affirm the image of God inside them. We recognize that even though they might look different or act different, they're no less worthy of dignity and just wages. But when that relationship breaks down, or when we don't put in the work to make that relationship, we often fear those who are different than us, which is what happens in Exodus. The first thing we learn about Pharaoh is that he didn't know Joseph. He didn't have a relationship with this group of foreigners, so instead of welcoming them, he feared them. He feared they might revolt. But instead of asking why they would be angry enough to revolt, he focused on how to control and dehumanize them so they'd be too demoralized to revolt. And again, this is giving us insight into the nature of oppression. Too often, the first reaction of institutions and the first reaction of people with power is to protect that power from the threat of rebellion, rather than considering what injustice might spark rebellion. I mean, this has been our president's response to peaceful protests against racial injustice. 
And this has been the response of many police departments. Rather than considering the injustices of policing and the injustice of our criminal justice system, they've used violence to prevent protests from happening. But it's not just institutions who feel threatened by their power. We do it too. But it's in more subtle ways that, that I'm going to play a little video where, where Kimberly Jones explains this. People are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance. Why? Why are people that poor? Why are people that broke? Why are people that that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like they're only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. Now, now looting is an extreme example, and that is helpful because most people see looting and think that it is only bad because it, it threatens peaceful society. But if we fail to ask why there is looting, then our only response will be to try to control the looting and try to stop the looting rather than addressing the structure of our society that continues to oppress people of color. That, that fear, it, it blinds us from our own complicity. It blinds us from how we need to change. Fear reinforces our prejudices. But in our story from Exodus, it's it beautifully ironic that the, that the same prejudices provide opportunity for resistance and liberation. Because Pharaoh attempts to control the Israelites by, by summoning two midwives named Shipra and Pua. Pharaoh tells them that when delivering babies, they should kill the boys, but the girls can live. Pharaoh fears that the boys will grow into men and revolt. But the women? What threat could they be? They're just women. They don't have any power. But these women are wise. They know that resistance to oppression begins with small actions. And they follow a God of justice. So they disobey the Pharaoh and they let the boys live. Pharaoh learns that the Hebrew boys aren't being killed. So he brings Shipra and Pua in for questioning. But they tell him, well, Hebrew women are not sophisticated like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. And they give birth before we arrive. And, and, and hidden here in the Hebrew, something really, really cool. Uh, Shipper and Pua describe the women as vigorous. And, and that's actually like a, a hominin. It's connected to the Hebrew word for, word for a wild animal. They're, they're almost describing them as animalistic because they know that Pharaoh sees Hebrew as, as less than human. So they use his prejudice 
to hide their civil disobedience. And it works. Pharaoh believes that Egyptians and Hebrews are so different that he lets the women go unpunished. But as it turns out, these women are not that different after all. The story continues with Pharaoh ordering his men to kill baby boys. But women continue to defy him. We turn, we're introduced to a Hebrew woman who hides her son until she's no longer able to. So she puts him in a basket and sends him down the Nile with her daughter watching. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the Nile. She finds the basket. She recognizes that this is a Hebrew boy. She decides to raise the child anyways, and she gives him the name Moses. These women, they see the evil of Pharaoh's plans, and they refuse to comply, even when it means breaking the law. They use their courage and their guile to save a child who will save a people. And, and, you know, for us, since we know who Moses is and, and how Moses freed the people from slavery, it's, it's sort of easy to look back and see this moment as the moment when Israel's deliverance begins. But in the moment when these women chose to act, they could never have imagined that they were in the opening scene of the world's greatest story of liberation. I mean, how could they think that? They didn't have the power to defeat Pharaoh. They simply did what they could. They could only save one boy. They could love him and teach him to pursue justice like his mother who bore him and his other mother, who pulled him from the Nile. It's easy to get intimidated and overwhelmed by huge oppressive systems like systemic racism in America. The, the scale and the tenacity of racial prejudice demoralizes and disempowers us until we believe that... The, we're just powerless to do anything about it. But we have power. It's the power of the women in our story. The power to resist in the small ways that are unique to each of us. The power to, to face our own racial bias. The power to do the work and learn about our own complicity the power to pressure our legislators, to listen, to educate, to support those whose voices need to be amplified. And I don't know what resistance looks like for you. I don't know what's before you. But no step towards justice is too small. And, and this is an easy work, but it is deeply spiritual work. Shipra and Pua introduce us to the image of God as a divine midwife. It's an image that we can use right now. 
because something new needs to be born in our country and in our lives. We need to see God like a midwife who is by the side of a laboring woman. Not not so much God doing the work for us or taking the pain away, but God is present and active, supporting and encouraging us as we struggle through the hardship and the pain. Because God is by our side, holding our hand, helping us believe that new life is possible. Amen.